I wish to look at um, a number of ideas concerning textiles, which I think we can identify informing many of the extraordinary developments in visual culture which take place in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. Now, textiles are a class of cultural artefact which are often overlooked in the narratives of art history, especially post-Renaissance European art history, where they're frequently deemed to represent a lesser order of creative achievement when compared to the canonical fine arts of painting, sculpture and architecture. Indeed, they're all too often relegated to the highly problematic category of women's work. It's intriguing then to realise that textiles, I believe, play a central role in the innovative thinking about the nature of art and design which gave birth to the secession in Vienna. Now, I want to suggest here that textiles are important to the Viennese secession and secession design in a number of highly significant ways not simply at a directly mimetic or imitative level, where, in particular, ethnic textiles of the Austro-Hungarian Empire provided design sources which were emulated by the secessionists, but also at a deeper structural level. Textiles and ideas about the formal characteristics of textiles can, I think, see, be seen informing many of the characteristics of secession design which we deem groundbreaking in the context of late 19th century historicism, which the movement is um, growing out of and reacting against. The Viennese secession is in many ways the splendid culmination of a trajectory of 19th century developments, as much if not more than it represents the genesis of something new growing as it does directly out of the design reform movements which were current in Europe in the latter half of the 19th century, especially in Britain, where the movements had their origins, and in particular in the German-speaking world, including Austria. The reform movements grew out of a concern that industrialisation was leading to a debasement of aesthetic quality in the production of household goods. In Britain, figures like John Ruskin and William Morris argued for the importance of handcraft traditions, believing that the restoration of the essential relationship between the craftsman and object production was both critical in order to guarantee the aesthetic quality of the object and morally necessary, providing the maker pleasure and a sense of fulfilment in the act of making and thus contributing in a concrete fashion to the improvement of society. Now, when we turn to consider the history of design reform in Austria, two figures of huge significance stand out. The German architect and art historian Gottfried Zemper, whom Will has already made mention to, arguably the greatest architect of the 19th century and certainly the most important architectural theorist of this period, and the Austrian art historian Alois Riegel, a foundational figure in the so-called Vienna School of Art History. Both men propagated ideas that were of enormous influence on the Viennese secession, and for both men, as it turns out, textiles played a fundamental role in their thinking. Both men were also inextricably linked, each in different ways, to the Imperial and Royal Austrian Museum for Art and Industry, today the Museum for Applied Arts in Vienna, 
an institution central to the Austrian design reform movement, and through its associated teaching arm, the School for Arts and Crafts, where Josef Hoffmann and Coleman Moser, for example, were professors, also central to the Viennese secession. The Museum for Art and Industry in Vienna was founded in 1864 on the model of the South Kensington Museum in London with an explicitly didactic mission. As its name suggests, it sought to facilitate the linking of industry and art, improving the products of the latter by exposing them to the former. And textiles were at the core of the institution's collections from its inception. Now that textiles should have been central to the museum's establishment and organisation is hardly surprising, since the architect Gottfried Zemper, architect, as we've heard, of the Hofburg, of the Kunsthistorisches Museum, the Natural History Museum, and the Burgtheater in Vienna, was a critical influence on the foundation of both the English and Austrian institutions, a fact which is often overlooked. Zemper had designed a number of installations at the London Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations in 1851. In 1852, on the basis of this experience, he published his treatise, Science, Industry and Art, in which he outlined his theory that there were forms inherently suited to the distinctive characteristics of individual media and craft techniques, and that poor design, as he th thought to see in many of the works displayed in the 1851 Great Exhibition, was the result of forms suited to one medium being copied in another inappropriate medium. In 1852, Zemper outlined in his manuscript Idealis Museum für Metallotechnik his vision for a reform in design education, which involved learning crafts by observing good quality historical models. The ideal design museum, Zemper argued, should be organized thematically around the four primary elements of architecture, weaving, pottery, carpentry, and masonry. Now here we encounter Zemper's distinctive architectural uh, theory. Architecture for Zemper was the supreme art form as it encompassed all arts and crafts. The act of building, according to Zemper, was founded on these basic craft media and techniques because they emerged from the earliest place of social gathering, the hearth. The ceramic hearth had to rest on a stone foundation, masonry. Around the hearth, an enclosure had to be created for shelter. And this was achieved through the erection of a wooden framework, carpentry, around which woven matting was hung, creating walls which articulated space, an extension of the more basic use of woven textiles to provide immediate protection from the elements in the guise of clothing. This organisational schema, based on Zemper's theory about the relationship between architecture and craft, served as the framework for all three of Europe's first museums of applied art. The South Kensington Museum in London of 1857, the Austrian Museum of Art and Industry in Vienna of 1864, and the Hungarian Museum of Applied Art in Budapest of 1874. Each of these museums divided its collections by media, 
with departments of textiles, glass, ceramics, leather, lacquer, enamel, wood, iron, bronze, precious stones, and so on. All illustrating Zemper's theory of the transformation of artistic style based on media and technique. Numerous teaching examples in an endless variety of materials and crafts techniques thus allowed students to observe the relationships between media and form in the development of the applied arts across history. Now, whilst Zemper's theories encompassed the full range of craft production, certain media and techniques were more important than others in his thinking. And it is very clear from Zemper's writings that the textile metaphor was absolutely foundational to his formal architectural thinking. For Zemper, a building at its most fundamental level consisted of a structural framework around which a fabric skin was wrapped. Now, straight away, we can see a direct influence of Zemper's ideas on the work of the Viennese modernists. It was Zemper's theories about techniques of material fabrication influencing the visual form of architecture, which stand immediately behind the achievements of Otto Wagner, the greatest architect of the Viennese secession and in many ways, the father of secession design. Wagner's Nutzstil, or functional style, arose out of the conviction that the sensitive use of appropriate materials determines the ultimate form of a building or object. And this, of course, ultimately leads to the modernist um, notion of form following function. Wagner's Maiolica House of 1888-89, that we see here, illustrates Zemper's ideas in both formal and material fashion. The cladding of the building in polychrome ceramic tiles is at a conceptual level a material realisation of Zemper's idea of a fabric skin wrapping a structural framework. Both the flat polychrome ornament adorning the building, or sorry, but the flat polychrome ornament adorning the building is also an evocation of the textile metaphor. And that can be especially seen in the context of the three-dimensional uh, sculptural ornament, which, um, and can I make this work? Uh, which characterises contemporary historicist architecture, as we see in this building, which stands uh, directly next to the Maiolica House. Now, our exhibition, our current exhibition, explores the themes of colour and flat ornament as design strategies exploited by the secessionists to create a modern appearance for household objects. And this idea can be directly related to these architectural theories of Zemper. Now here in this, uh, this slide, I simply juxtapose um, Wagner's facade for the Maiolica House with an example of a late 19th century um, Slovakian folk embroidery. We're going to return to the uh, subject of folk embroideries in some details a little later on. But I just, in formal terms, want to draw your attention to the notion of flat applied floral ornament, the swagging um, of the, uh, the ornament on Wagner's building, and the, um, the sense of um, uh, border uh, in formal terms across the top. This idea of um, the application of colour and flat ornament as a design strategy to produce a modern appearing surface is, that the uh, secessionists exploit is something that we see a fabulous example of in, say, this Jutta Seeker tea and coffee service of 1903, works that you'll see in the exhibition. 
Now, the other highly significant figure in the worlds of both the Austrian Museum for Art and Industry and from 1894 onwards, the world of Viennese academic art historical theory was Alois Riegel, a founding figure of the Vienna School of Art History. Now, in 1886, Riegel, I mean, best known in many ways as an art historian and an art historical theorist, in fact, joined the museum for art and industry, accepting a curatorial position in the textile department, where he would work for the next 10 years, eventually as that department's director. His first book, Riegel's first publication, is Altorientalische Teppiche, Antique Oriental Carpets of 1891, growing out of his curatorial experience um, at the Museum for Art and Industry. Riegel, as well as his position, or because of his position at the Museum for Art and Industry, was also a critically important figure in the Austrian design reform movement, a movement in which the Museum for Art and Industry played a key role. Now, in this period in Austria, the last quarter of the 19th century, there was deemed to be a very close connection between the ideas of design reform and women. Women were seen to be the decorators and makers of the home. They were believed by the, naturally enough, male advocates of design reform to be inherently capable of interior decoration by virtue of their innate feminine aptitude for beauty and graceful appearance, which was reflected in their preoccupation with dressing. Advocates of design reform like Regal believed, therefore, that it was in the home that the battle for the reform of public taste was to be won. Thus, those fields of material fabrication traditionally deemed the purview of women, things like needlework and textiles, became pivotal to the design reform project. If one could reform the taste of women and their handcrafts, one could effect reform of public taste in general. Not only would women furnish their homes with high quality, aesthetically sound objects of their own manufacture, but they would become discerning consumers, thus forcing commercial manufacturers to improve the quality of their productions. The focus on needlework and textiles as the theatre in which the battles for improved public taste were to be won can be directly tied to the concerns of the Museum for Art and Industry and its collecting patterns. From its earliest years, the Museum for Art and Industry, pursuing its Zemperian collecting program, devoted itself to assembling collections of a, of a variety of textiles, including folk textiles from the various ethnic and cultural groups who made up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Already at the 1873 Weltausstellung, or World Exhibition in Vienna, the distinctive qualities of traditional embroideries from across the empire were recognised. And indeed, the abstract geometric designs of traditional Hungarian cross-stitch patterns with red and black patterns on white backgrounds could not have seemed more different 
to the naturalistic floral and sentimental subjects typical of much dilettante needlework executed from commercial kits in the Austrian half of the empire. And these patterns that we see illustrated here from the Novotny archive in Vienna, a needlework um, concern which still exists to this day, demonstrate the types of commercial designs being produced in Vienna in the second half of the 19th century. These are to be contrasted with characteristic examples of Hungarian folk embroidery of the same period. Here an example exhibited at the 1873 Weltausstellung and another example, typical example in uh, a black and characteristic black and red palette. Now both cross-stitch and needlepoint in formal terms are based upon a modular grid system and although it is possible to create naturalistic and illusionistic designs with these techniques, many critics argued that such designs reflected an inappropriate use and understanding of materials. A truer reflection of the nature of the medium was to be found in needlework designs which exploited the geometric structure of the canvas. Thus, the geometricized, abstracted, floral and animal motifs of folk embroideries from the eastern parts of the empire were seen to represent an aesthetically superior grasp of technique and materials. The argument is Zemperian. Particular forms are inherently suited to particular media. And it emphasizes the idea that a superior aesthetic value was to be found in traditional folk embroideries rather than in the debased productions of the 19th century urban Viennese bourgeoisie. Thus, it was folk embroideries which came to form a key component of educational initiatives by the Museum for Art and Industry, spearheaded by Regal, and it's also the associated educational arm of that institution, the Kunstgewerbeschule, the School for Arts and Crafts, which had been founded in 1868 and which, unusually, from the outset, had admit, admitted women to its programs. Other more specific programs for needlework education were also established, like the Fachschule für Kunststickerei, the Technical School for Art Embroidery, founded in 1874 and drawing upon the museum's collections for its teaching. Examples of model embroideries were also disseminated in print through popular craft and decoration journals. We have here an example, this is from a slightly later period, it dates to 1904-05, so already the period of the secession, but an example of good embroidery, that on the, uh, the left, the geometricized secession design, and bad embroidery on the right, uh, something which is attempting a naturalistic style unsuited to the technique and the medium. Folk embroideries from the Eastern Empire then played a major role in the Austrian design reform movement, their superior design characteristics in Zemperian terms, making them ideal sources of design inspiration. Now, needlework remained a key field of Frauenarbeit or women's work amongst the Viennese bourgeoisie in the first decades of the 20th century, in the secession period. It is, and I show you here some of the furniture from the, the boudoir of the Galia apartment, Hoffman's apartment of 1913, with a Hoffman sewing table. 
It is no surprise then, given the ongoing significance of this particular field of craft endeavour, that many key figures in the world of Vienna 1900 assembled collections of Eastern European embroideries. Now, Gustav Klimt is known to have collected pieces of Chinese and Japanese costume, but his companion, Emilia Flerger, the couturier, had a large textile collection, which alongside Chinese, North African, and Indian textiles included numerous examples of Eastern European embroideries of a type similar to these Slovakian embroideries from the collection of the Museum from, uh, for Art and Industry collected before 1912. A colleague of Flerger's describes the textiles displayed in the reception room of her fashion salon designed by the Wiener Werkstätter, and I quote, on one side there was a fireplace, above which there was a beautifully embroidered dragon, and at the side there were display cases full of beautiful embroideries, Hungarian costumes, Slovakian embroideries, which was something very special. Such textiles also made an appearance or were, ref were reflected in the paintings of her lifelong companion, Gustav Klimt. And I just show here, or juxtapose here, Klimt's 1913 portrait of Eugenia Primavesi and uh, an example of a Moravian folk costume from the first quarter of the 20th century. And the floral textile, which um, Primavesi's reform uh, dress um, is made from, draws direct inspiration from the kind of floral needlework designs found in uh, Moravian folk textiles. Josef Hoffmann too born in Moravia, we must remember, collected Eastern European embroidery and often spoke of the affinity he felt for the traditional crafts of his homeland. Again, it's of no surprise then to discover that the designers of the secession took direct inspiration from folk textiles in their own textile designs. And um, I show you here a textile swatch, uh, the pattern Vorgarten, designed by Wilhelm Jonasch for the Wiener Werkstätter in 1911-1912, with a, um, a late 19th century decorative uh, sheet border from Western Transdanubia. And just in simple formal terms, um, you can see the direct formal relationship um, between the Wiener Werkstätter textile and the folk embroidery. And also this example, um, a, a later textile designed by um, Josef Hoffmann, his Athos fabric from 1928, and this uh, Romanian um, uh, belt ornament, um, a, um, a cross-stitch embroidery uh, that was purchased by the Hungarian Museum for Art, for Art and Design at the 1873 Vienna World Exhibition. But apart from this directly imitative inspiration, I also think we can detect other more structural influences on the creations of the secession designers arising out of their interest in folk textiles and the importance of the textile metaphor in Austrian design reform philosophy more generally. I have already mentioned the Zemperian notion promulgated by the late 19th century design reformers that as both cross-stitch and needlepoint are based upon a modular grid system, they are more suited to abstracted geometric forms of pattern than naturalistic designs. 
Now, if there is one formal characteristic which can be said to encapsulate design of the early secession, it is the grid. Indeed, Hoffman earned himself the sobriquet quadrato, little square, for the ubiquity of the grid in his um, design work. I simply show here, juxtapose again that transdenobian um, uh, embroidery design with this design and the final executed product, a Moser casket design from 1903. This predominance of the grid in Hoffman's design work is no better represented than in his Gitterwerk designs, his metalwork designs, the perfect union of form and ornament. But it is also reflected in examples of his furniture, as we see in these library steps from 1905. It is tempting to see in this formal use of the grid an evocation of Zemper's architectural theory. Colum and Moser too makes frequent use of the grid as an ornamental and structural motif. Although in the two examples of chairs by Moser that we see here, both by the Prague-Rudnika basket factory, Korbwarenfabrikation, the visual grid is executed in woven rush explicitly evoking the Zemperian idea of woven rush matting as the fundamental architectonic building block. The union of weaving and grid, whoops, sorry, I rush ahead there, in the chair on the right, designed for the Secession's 1903 Klimt exhibition, through its graphic black and white colouring, also succeeds in evoking the visual characteristics of cross-stitch folk embroidery. The characteristic colour palette of much Eastern European folk embroidery, white ground with black and or red ornament, or a simple palette of bright colours on a white ground, is clearly related to the colour palettes employed in early secession-designed interiors. We think of the characteristic schemes of Hoffman with a basic palette of black and white with controlled graphic highlights of strong colour. This constellation of echoes and resonances reaches its apogee in a design like this, I would argue. An elevation for a bedroom by Heinrich Scharfen published in the Viennese journal Das Interieur in 1902. This is an architectural drawing. It's a wall of storage furniture, wardrobes and other smaller storage units here. But all sense of space in this depiction is totally suppressed. The wall depicted appears utterly flat, despite the built-in fittings, recalling Zemper's idea of the building in its most basic form as a fabric-wrapped framework. The simple bright colour palette on a white ground is typical of the secession interior, a striking contrast to the dark, glittering palette of a contemporary historicist interior, but also redolent of the colours found in much folk embroidery from the eastern parts of the Austrian Empire. The design itself is also clearly founded upon a grid-like geometry. And despite its purported depiction of architectural space, this plate could just as easily be read as a flat ornamental pattern. Indeed, as a pattern to be executed in cross-stitch or embroidery. This is a particularly fitting ambiguity given the centrality attributed to women and women's crafts, textiles, in the direct decoration of the domestic interior by the Austrian design reform movement. Here, 
in a secession architect's vision for a modern interior, we find the textile metaphor informing so much Viennese secession design brought to its fullest realization. Thank you. <laughs>